AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to our multi-part series on the rise and fall of 70s disco. On this episode, we're continuing to track the dazzling, danceable rise of disco from the underground urban clubs all the way to disco's dominance of Top 40 Radio. I'm Steve Greenberg, and this is Speed of Sound. Okay, so it's the summer of 1974, and Rock the Boat and Rock Your Baby have just jump-started the disco era by becoming back-to-back number one records. The gold rush was on, and the first artist out of the gate was Barry White, who went all in on disco after his big success with Love Unlimited Orchestra, whose song Love's Theme was actually the first number one pop hit to get its start in the New York discos earlier that year. Now, while Love's Theme wasn't made with the discos in mind and became a disco hit by accident, pretty much everything Barry White did for the rest of the decade most certainly was. And he became the king of disco's early years, beginning with Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe, which shot to number one just two months after Rock the Boat. Can't Get Enough ended up as the number one song of the year on the Billboard Soul Chart, and the Soul radio stations, which had a primarily African-American listenership, were very quickly becoming the place on the radio dial where the club hits were appearing first, although they were starting to cross over to pop radio with greater and greater frequency. One of the first record labels to pick up on the pop radio potential for disco was a label in New York City called Scepter Records, headed by a legendary music executive named Florence Greenberg, no relation, who was one of the first women to own and run a record label. 
Florence Greenberg was a pretty remarkable woman. She was a suburban housewife in Passaic, New Jersey, who, in her mid-40s, decided she'd had enough of that life and got into the music business, just like that. Kind of like the music business equivalent of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And throughout the 1960s, Scepter Records had tremendous success with acts like the Shirelles and Dionne Warwick. You might also remember Florence Greenberg as the record executive who gave fellow Passaic native Joey D his big break. Well, in the summer of 1974, Scepter Records released a record called Do It Till You're Satisfied by a Brooklyn group called BT Express. That record was an instant smash in the discos, and it was starting to climb the soul chart, but Florence Greenberg felt that the song really belonged on pop radio, too. However, she met with a lot of resistance from New York's powerhouse top 40 radio station, WABC. The music sounds So Florence Greenberg invited the entire WABC programming staff out to a night at a local disco so they could see the reaction to the BT Express song on the dance floor for themselves. Well, WABC immediately added Do It Till You're Satisfied to its playlist. It should be noted that the version of Do It Till You're Satisfied that was getting the airplay was not the version as originally recorded by the group BT Express. It was a remix of the song done by a man named Tom Moulton, who's gone down in history as the father of the remix. Earlier in 1974, Tom Moulton began making mixtapes for a disco called The Sandpiper, which was located on New York's Fire Island. His mixtapes didn't just keep the music going nonstop. Tom Moulton also cut up the songs themselves, emphasizing the parts of the records that he thought would really drive the dance floor crowd into a frenzy. Scepter Records asked Tom Moulton if he'd have a go at remixing Do It Till You're Satisfied for the discos, and the result was a record with much louder drums and bass and more instrumental breaks. Now, the members of BT Express were none too happy with the result. Recording artists in general aren't so fond of other people messing with their work, but Do It Till You're Satisfied, as remixed by Tom Moulton, turned out to be a number two record on the national pop chart, and it went all the way to number one on the soul chart. So now, with the possibility of massive pop success extremely real, producers started making disco records with the specific intent of crossing them over from the clubs to the radio. And that meant they needed pop songs. Eddie O'Loughlin was a music publisher in New York at the time who'd never been to a disco, but he was told that a song he published called Macumba by a rock band called Titanic was being played at a club called Le Jardin. So he decided to go down there and check it out. Eddie O'Loughlin was surprised to find out that the DJ at Le Jardin wasn't playing his song Macumba in its entirety, but rather he was just playing the instrumental break from the song again and again, mixing back and forth between two turntables. Eddie O'Loughlin realized that while there were a lot of great grooves being played at places like Le Jardin, there weren't a lot of songs that could become hits on the radio. Here he is recalling that eureka moment. Walk into the club, and after an hour, I'm realizing that it's all beats. A lot of rhythm, a lot of percussion. I played a record by Titanic, which was a Swedish or French band, I'm not sure, called Macumba. Boom, 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 boom. Anyway, 
I said, after I left, it feels like this could be a good market to uh, create music for. I was just a, um, a music publisher. So I said, maybe use the substance of the uh, foundation, the tracks, but maybe we could find a great song. So Eddie O'Loughlin combed through his publishing catalog, and he found a song called Doctor's Orders that was a hit in England the previous year by a group called Sonny. Then he signed a local New York singer named Carol Douglas to his brand new record label, Midland Records. And in October of 1974, he took her into the studio with the production team of Tony Bon Jovi, the cousin of 80s rocker John Bon Jovi, and Miko Minardo, who later in the 70s had a big number one record with his disco version of the music from Star Wars. And they cut a disco version of Doctor's Orders. Eddie O'Loughlin remembers. I took a taxi home that night. That's like a big deal for me. I take trains at that point in my life. I'm always taking a train. Train was like 25 cents, I think. I'm taking a taxi because I think this is going to be a very big hit record on my our, our little label called Midland Records. It was just such a confident feeling. I'll never forget it. Within days of its release, Doctor's Orders was one of the biggest records in New York. It was like an instant hit because the market was underserved, I guess is the sophisticated word years, years went on. We had orders for 100,000 singles like in five days, six days. So it was a definitely, oh, there's something really new happening. Nearly simultaneously, Tony Bon Jovi and Miko went into the studio with another newcomer named Gloria Gaynor. And they produced a disco version of a song called Never Can Say Goodbye, which had already been a big hit twice in the previous three years, first by the Jackson 5. Never can say goodbye. No, 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 no. And then by Isaac Hayes. I never can say goodbye. Even though the pain and seem to fall Well, Gloria Gaynor's disco version of Never Can Say Goodbye was met with the same overwhelming response as Doctor's Orders, both in the clubs and on the radio. By this point, there were so many disco records making an impression that Billboard initiated a top disco songs chart in October of 1974, which ranked the most popular songs in the clubs. And the first number one on that chart was Gloria Gaynor's Never Can Say Goodbye. By November of 1974, disco was becoming so hot that a New York radio station, WPIX-FM, introduced a program called Disco 102. 102 was their frequency on the radio dial. And Disco 102 was four hours of nonstop disco music every Saturday night. Neil McIntyre, who was the program director at WPIX-FM, figured that people getting ready to go out and party at discos would like to listen to some disco music to get them in the mood. Well, the show became pretty popular, and by the next year, Disco 102 was on the air seven nights a week. And by 1976, the station was playing 100% disco. W-E-I-X Disco 102
Now, in January 1975, when Gloria Gaynor's album came out, it caused a huge sensation in the disco world because the entire first side of the album was an extended disco mix of three songs, including Never Can Say Goodbye, that played continuously for 18 minutes. This was the idea of mixer Tom Moulton, as he recounted in a 2019 interview at the Red Bull Music Academy. DJs are always complaining they have no time to like to go out and go to the bathroom or have a sandwich. There's no time. I thought, you know, I'm going to do something nice for the DJs. I'm going to put it, I'm going to make a medley and put it together like it's one song and it's 18 minutes. So if you can't eat a sandwich in 18 minutes, give up, you know? During the first few years of disco, Tom Moulton did remixes of just about every notable club hit, always extending the breaks and boosting the rhythm. Sometimes he'd add additional drums on top of the drums that were already there, or even a horn part. He was a real artist, and he did it all with audio tape and a razor blade, making the cuts by hand. Sometimes listeners could even hear the splices. Without a doubt, Tom Moulton invented the remix as we know it today, and every DJ who's come since owes him a real debt of thanks. The song we're hearing right now is Tom Moulton's remix of Al Downing's I'll Be Holding On, which was yet another number one song on the disco chart. It's also the song that led to the accidental invention of the 12-inch single. Here's the story. In late 1974, Tom Moulton went to the studio to make a test pressing of his remix of I'll Be Holding On, and he was told by the engineer that the studio was all out of blank 7-inch discs to press it on. So they pressed it on a 12-inch disc instead, and that allowed the grooves on the disc to be wider. Well, this caused the bass on the record to be deeper, and overall, it gave the mix greater dynamics. It also enabled the record to be played at louder volumes without distorting. Plus, a 12-inch disc solved the problem of fitting really long songs on one side of a disc. No more switching from one turntable to another to play part one and part two of a record. Pretty soon, record labels were sending promotional 12-inch singles to the DJs in the clubs in order to have their songs sound as awesome as possible on the dance floor. Starting with Warner Brothers Records' 12-inch promo disc of Dance, Dance, Dance by the group Calhoun. Calhoun was this local disco band from New York. I think they must have been from Long Island because on Disco 102, they always used to have ads for clubs out on Long Island like Rum Bottoms and all these places. And they always said, Coming this Saturday night. Calhoun. I have no idea what Calhoun looked like. I have no idea if they had any other songs besides Dance, 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 but I just remember them as the guys in the commercials for Rum Bottoms. By the end of 1974, disco music was turning into a national sensation, and people were becoming more and more intrigued by the whole disco scene. The spirit of that early moment was captured on record, sort of, by a veteran record producer named Bob Crew, who in the 60s produced the big Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons hits. In 1974, Bob Crew formed a group called Discotex and the Sexolettes, fronted by a former hairdresser known as Sir Monty Rock III. 
Now, Monty Rock III was already a gay icon in the culture by this point. He'd made over 100 appearances on TV talk shows like The Johnny Carson Show or The Merv Griffin Show. Although it was really unclear what his actual talent was. Apparently, he was just a fun guest to have on a talk show. I'll say, say it again. I have long hair, and I might wear a little makeup, but I'm like any ordinary cat. Anyway, listen. Get Dancing by Disco Tex and the Sexolettes recreated the vibe of being in a disco with Monty Rock playing the role of the DJ, addressing the crowd. Get Dancing was a smash, and it gave America a very campy first glimpse of what it might have been like at a New York disco. Incidentally, at about the same time Bob Crew went into the studio with the exact same backing singers and musicians as he used on the discotheques and the Sexolex record, and he recorded the original version of a song he'd written with another member of the Sexolets, Kenny Nolan. That song, Lady Marmalade, was almost instantly covered by LaBelle, and of course it went on to become a classic. Here's a little bit of the 11th Hour's original version of Lady Marmalade. And here's LaBelle's cover version. Meanwhile, disco was starting to go worldwide, with American disco hits becoming massive in Europe and European record producers starting to emulate that disco sound. The first big disco hit to emerge from England was Carl Douglas's Kung Fu Fighting in November of 1974. It was, like so many hit records, originally recorded as a throwaway B-side, but the DJs flipped the record over and played Kung Fu Fighting instead of whatever the intended A-side was. As it happened, America was in the middle of a kung fu craze at that very moment, with Bruce Lee movies and a TV show called Kung Fu achieving huge popularity. When you can take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to leave. Given how big the kung fu craze was at the time, I can't imagine how kung fu fighting wasn't chosen as the A-side in the first place. But in any event, it went on to become the fifth disco record to make it to number one on the pop chart in that incredible breakthrough year of 1974. It's notable, by the way, that when Kung Fu Fighting made its way to the U.S., it first broke out of the discos on the West Coast, which was a sure sign that the disco movement was spreading far beyond New York. Meanwhile, back in Philadelphia, super R&B producers Gamble and Huff were acutely aware that the ground was shifting. Gamble and Huff had produced some of those unintentional disco hits of the previous couple of years, but it was their protégés, Harris, Baker, and Young, who led the way by pioneering the four-on-the-floor disco beat and who were really having a lot of disco success by making records with the clubs in mind. Harris, Baker, and Young were still part of MFSB, the band that played on all of Gamble and Huff's productions, and so Gamble and Huff had no trouble jumping on the disco train. Working with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, featuring the incredible lead vocals of Teddy Pendergrass, they released a song called Bad Luck, 
which featured lyrics that addressed all kinds of political issues, ranging from inflation to the resignation of President Nixon the previous summer. Bad Luck was by far the biggest disco hit to date. It spent 11 weeks at number one on the Billboard disco chart. And in fact, Billboard to this day still lists Bad Luck as the number one song of all time on the disco chart. Bad Luck was an amazing record, and incidentally, one of my personal favorites of the whole period. Bad Luck may have been a socially conscious record like a lot of the soul music of the early 70s, but times were changing and music audiences were becoming a lot more interested in partying than in changing the world. And so even Gamble and Huff's biggest act, the OJs, moved away from making gritty social commentary records like For the Love of Money, and they got with the zeitgeist, recording big disco party hits like Living for the Weekend and, of course, the classic I Love Music. With the major labels still not really in the disco game and the very top pop recording stars not yet ready to go disco, a whole slew of older musical acts, most of whom hadn't had a hit in years, jumped into the fray and made comebacks by getting on the bandwagon. Fresh from his success with Disco Tex and the Sexolettes, producer Bob Crew went into the studio with his old friend Frankie Valli, and they came up with a song called Swearing to God, a massive hit in 1975, and the song that really set Frankie Valli up for his incredible string of disco-influenced 70s hits, ranging from December 1963 to the theme from Greece. But Frankie Valli was a kid compared to Herbie Mann a 45-year-old jazz flutist who'd had a hit back in 1968 called Memphis Underground. He made a big comeback in that first disco wave by covering a record by DJ David Mancuso's favorite Spanish band, Barabbas, that people from his record label were hearing in the clubs. The song was called Hijack. And even though Herbie Mann was quoted as saying, Disco bores the shit out of me. He managed to beat out Barabbas and have the big radio hit with his version of the song. Probably most amazing was the comeback of a woman named Shirley Goodman, who'd had one lone hit back in the 1950s as half of the duo Shirley and Lee. Their record was called Let the Good Times Roll. In late 1974, Shirley went into the studio with record producer and label owner, Sylvia Robinson. Now, we discussed Sylvia Robinson at length in our episode on Sugar Hill Records, and we learned that Sylvia was someone who never let a new fad go by without jumping on the bandwagon. She always got in early. Well, in late 1974, with disco in the air, she recorded Shirley Goodman on a song that married the disco beat to the 1950s Bo Diddley guitar riff. The record was called Shame, 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 and it came out credited to Shirley and Company. Shame, 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 sh
Now, it turned out that the Bo Diddley guitar lick went together really well with the disco beat, and there was this mini boomlet of songs that featured it. One of them was from England by a woman named Tina Charles. But more interestingly, there was a record called Disco Stomp by an artist named Hamilton Bohannon. Now, the people listening to this podcast may recognize the name Bohannon, primarily because he's one of the artists name-checked in the Tom Tom Club's great 1981 song, Genius of Love. But Bohannon was a real rhythmic pioneer, and he made some of the fiercest, hardest disco records of the 70s, none of which ever hit the American pop charts, although they were massive club hits. Disco Stomp was probably the best of the bunch. It was a top 10 hit in England, and in fact, it's actually the inspiration for Genius of Love. Incidentally, Disco Stomp was also the inspiration for a song called New York Groove by a UK group named Hello, which was later a hit in the US for Kiss member Ace Freely. Up next, the mastermind behind Cheek refuses to let the Queen of Soul go disco. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The disco boom led to the floodgates really starting to open for veteran soul singers to have their first hits in years, including Ben E. King, who hadn't had a big pop hit since Stand By Me all the way back in 1961. But there he was, back in the top 10 in 1975 with Supernatural Thing. And there was Johnny Taylor, who emerged from the bankruptcy of Memphis's Stax Records to have a number one record that was the biggest hit of his career. And Esther Phillips, who hadn't had a hit since 1962, but came back with a disco remake of an old Dinah Washington song. What a difference a day And of course, Lou Rawls, whose career was so cold that he was appearing on Dean Martin's Celebrity Roasts on television at this point, before he teamed up with Gamble and Huff and the Philadelphia musicians to record his biggest hit ever. You'll never find as long as you live someone who loves you tender but for every star who used disco as a comeback vehicle, there were great artists who couldn't or wouldn't jump on the disco bandwagon and consequently saw the hits dry up. Most notably, of course, is the queen of soul herself, Aretha Franklin, who was already a legend at this point, having had 13 top 10 pop hits since 1967. The last one of those hits came out in the spring of 1974, just before Rock the Boat went to number one. But it would be another 11 years before Aretha Franklin returned to the upper reaches of the pop charts, buried as she was by the disco avalanche. In fact, that's why the rock band Steely Dan were able to sing this lyric in 1978. Nile Rodgers of the great disco group Chic recalls, with some sadness, actually being asked to produce Aretha during the disco years. I flew out to Encino 
to Aretha Franklin's house. And she and I was just so excited. Oh my God, I'm gonna work with Aretha Franklin. It's amazing. Because up until that point I had never worked with anyone famous. It was all just, you know, Chic or Sister Sledge or Norma Jean. It was all homegrown stuff. And um and she sat down on the piano with that magical voice and then she sang, I'm gonna be the only star tonight down at the disco. And I looked at her and I was like, What? Aretha Frankie, Queen of Soul, you don't have to do this. And so I wouldn't do that song and she fired me, which was perfectly fine because I didn't want to go down in history as the guy who did Aretha Franklin's disco record. Another of those veteran record makers who saw a big opportunity in disco was a producer named Van McCoy, who'd worked with the Shirelles, Barbara Lewis, and a lot of other artists going back to the early 60s. Now, In the spring of 75, he heard about this dance that was being danced by Puerto Rican teenagers in the South Bronx. The dance was called The Hustle. And what was interesting about it was it was a touch dance. That is, it was danced by a couple, unlike every single popular dance that had come out since The Twist, which was the first dance you danced alone. Van McCoy had never actually seen The Hustle done, but he knew the records that kids were hustling to, and so he made a record called simply The Hustle, and released it under the name Van McCoy and the Soul City Symphony. The hustle hit the clubs in February of 1975, and it shot to number one nationally in July. Well, the hustle changed the culture on the dance floor. It brought on a return to a more traditional style of dancing, danced by couples who were touching with steps that had to be learned. It was the first new touch dance to become popular in the decade and a half since the twist. Now, pop culture tends to run in cycles, and the do-your-own-thing ethos of the 60s was now giving way to something more formalized and more seemingly sophisticated. The hustle sent the disco boom into an even higher gear, Dance studios, which had fallen on pretty hard times since the advent of all those free-form dances in the mid-60s, saw a rush of people who wanted to take hustle lessons so they wouldn't miss out on the fun. And a boatload of hustle songs quickly appeared in the market, exhorting dancers to do some form or another of the hustle, like The Latin Hustle by Eddie Drennan. or the Fatback Band's Spanish Hustle. It was at this point that the national media began to take notice. Time Magazine and Newsweek both ran huge stories on the disco fad. And in the New York Times, conservative political columnist William Sapphire celebrated the hustle, noting, This new dance is as revolutionary as the twist and as politically portentous. A standard is set. One must study, practice, and work to achieve success in doing the hustle. The absolute freedom days of the dance are over. Disco was becoming very big, and inevitably, the major record labels started to get in on the action in a major way inundating radio with disco records. But in order to get on the radio, a disco record first had to become a hit in the discos. 
Now, by the end of 1975, there were 10,000 discos in the U.S. And getting the newest records had always been a pretty tricky process for the disco DJs. It required personal relationships with people at the labels who'd give them free promo copies, or else they'd have to go out and buy the records themselves with their own money. In the spring of 1975, David Mancuso held a meeting at his club, The Loft, which was also his home, with some of his fellow DJs, and they came up with a solution to the problem of how to get records. It was called the New York Record Pool. The idea was simple. Bonafide DJs would sign up for the record pool, and the labels would send copies of all the new releases directly to the record pool, which would then distribute the records to its members. Corey Robbins, a longtime music executive, was a young DJ at the time, and he remembers what it was like belonging to the New York record pool. It was at 99 Prince Street. Uh, David Mancuso started it with, I think, Steve D'Aquisto, and you paid, I think, a small amount of money uh, every month to be a member. It was very, very low. And then you'd go there every week, you know, like on a Friday, and you'd pick up, you know, they had, I don't know how many members at that point, maybe 75 members, and record companies would send 75 copies of each new release, and they would put it in your little bin. And every Friday, I, I would go there, and I'd pick up a box of between 25 and 50 records. In return for the free records, the DJs filled out feedback forms, which gave the labels a sense of which records were working on the dance floors and which were stiffs. And it was all nonprofit. We've already discussed how veteran artists used the disco boom to make comebacks. But the biggest comeback of them all, by far, was the return of the Bee Gees. In case you don't know, the Bee Gees were Australian brothers whose family relocated to England, and they'd had a run of huge Beatlesque hits in the late 60s. I just Then they broke up, but they got back together and had a couple of more hits in the early 70s. By 1972, the hits had completely dried up and they needed to try a new approach. Their friend Eric Clapton, who had just recorded an album at Criteria Studios in Miami, suggested to the Bee Gees that they pick themselves up and move to Miami, record their next record there. Well, once they got there, the Bee Gees became extremely influenced by the disco scene in Miami and they were pushed further in the direction of disco by their producer, a veteran soul hit maker named Arif Marden, who had just produced a number one disco record with a Scottish group called The Average White Band. Pick up the pieces. The Bee Gees took Arif Marden's advice and came up with a disco song called Jive Talking. It was a number one hit and it set their career on a whole new trajectory. On their next album, the following year, they embraced disco even more and went to number one yet again with a song called You Should Be Dancing. Of course, fate would have even bigger things in store for that record and for the Bee Gees, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, the Bee Gees weren't the only ones having disco success out of Miami in 1975. TK Records, one of a number of record labels owned by the legendary Miami record man Henry Stone, was becoming a disco powerhouse. Henry Stone was one of those colorful characters who dotted the record business back in those days. Very comfortable in the back room with mobsters, 
but also at home in the studio with musicians. Over the course of several decades, Henry Stone had a hand in launching the careers of everyone from James Brown, who he signed to his friend Sid Nathan's King Records label, to Sam and Dave, who he signed to his friend Morris Levy's Roulette Records. And by the way, years later, Henry Stone was actually the man who put up the initial seed money for Sugar Hill Records until Morris Levy bought out his interest. But when disco broke big, that was when Henry Stone really hit his peak. His label, TK Records, was, for a time, the biggest independent label in the business. Henry Stone accomplished that through a combination of great records and payola. As he recounted in his autobiography, which was called Payola, People like booze, drugs, hookers, expensive meals, and nights on the town, especially DJs. And most of them will take bribes to play certain music. In the 70s, I'd give a DJ $10,000 at a time just to play certain records. I was the king of that, the king of payola. But even payola can't make a bad record into a true hit. Fortunately for Henry Stone, TK's roster was loaded with talent during the disco years. George McRae, who hit number one with Rock Your Baby, plus George's wife Gwen McRae, the group Foxy, Bobby Caldwell, T-Connection, and the multi-talented Betty Wright, who duetted with Peter Brown on Dance With Me. And who in 1975 became the first woman ever to win a Grammy in the Best R&B Song category for her amazing record, Where Is The Love? But the biggest of all of Henry Stone's acts was KC and the Sunshine Band. Remember in our previous episode, we talked about Casey and the Sunshine Junkanoo Band, whose leader, Harry Wayne Casey, produced George McRae's Rock Your Baby? Well, they dropped the Junkanoo from their name, and as Casey and the Sunshine Band began an incredible string of hits that took the Bahamian Junkanoo groove and blended it with a stomping disco beat. Starting in 1975, through a combination of that irresistible beat and Henry Stone's payola, they had four number one records in 18 months. Of course, you could argue that their number ones all sounded like the same record, but it was a really good record. Now, the Bee Gees, the average white band, and Casey and the Sunshine Band represented the emergence of a type of disco played by white artists and aimed straight at the heart of middle America. So, disco music, which at the beginning was really an offshoot of African-American soul music, started to have offshoots of his own that had very little or even nothing at all to do with the soul music tradition. And a lot of this music was coming out of Europe. In 1975, Euro disco started to emerge as a big force in the U.S. At first, the disco music made in Europe sounded a lot like American disco. 
A French producer named Jacques Morali even went to Philadelphia to record with the great musicians there. And under the name The Ritchie Family, he had a big hit with Brazil, which was a cover of a 1930s song that evoked exotic locales and suave sophistication. But it wasn't long before a distinctly European sound started to emerge. And that new sound originated in Germany, influenced by the German electronic group Kraftwerk. The first German disco group to score big in the U.S. was Silver Convention, who were based in Munich. Their first hit, Fly, Robin, Fly, sounded nothing at all like soul music. But its very unique production and its throbbing disco beat propelled it not only to number one on the U.S. pop chart, but it also hit number one on the R&B chart, which was the first time a European artist had ever done that. The kids were dancing to Fly, Robin, Fly on Soul Train just as much as they were on American Bandstand. At roughly the same time, an even more important talent emerged from the Munich music scene. Three talents, actually, two of them being songwriting producers and one, a singer. And none of them were German. Giorgio Moroder was an Italian producer. Pete Bellotta was British. And together with Giorgio, he'd written a big worldwide hit in 1972, a song called Son of My Father, which was credited to Giorgio. Incidentally, Son of My Father was one of the very first pop hits to use a Moog synthesizer. The singer Giorgio and Pete teamed up with in Munich was an American who'd relocated to Europe at the end of the 60s to take a part in the German production of the musical Hair. Her name was Donna Summer. Donna Summer kicked around for a while on the German music scene in the early 70s, and once disco music made its way across the Atlantic in 1974, she got together with Pete and Giorgio and had a couple of hits in Holland. By the way, according to Eddie O'Loughlin, she also sang on at least one of the early Silver Convention tracks, which appeared on his Midland International label. About six months later, after we discovered that the record was becoming very successful, we got a request from the company we licensed the record from, saying that one of the girls wants to go solo and could we give her a release? Oh, fine, who is that? Uh, Her name is Donna Summer. Oh, no problem. We give the release. Her name was on the contract and that was fine and she did great. In 1975, Donna Summer suggested to Giorgio that he should write a song with the title Love to Love You Baby, a line that had been bouncing around in her head for a while. But when Giorgio came back to her with the finished lyrics for Love to Love You Baby, she felt it was way too sexually explicit. And also, Giorgio had put in this part for erotic moans and groans. Donna Summer agreed to sing the song, but only as a demo recording that then they'd pitch to a different singer to actually record. But once Donna Summer completed her vocal, Giorgio convinced her that she had a really big hit on her hands and please don't give this song away. So the record with Donna Summer singing on it 
was released, and it became another hit for her in Holland. At this point, a copy of the record was sent to a man named Neil Bogart, who owned Casablanca Records in Los Angeles. Neil Bogart was, by this point, already a very successful record executive. He was a radio promo man at Cameo Parkway Records in Philadelphia during that label's final days. And then he moved over to Buddha Records, where he helped invent 60s bubblegum music. Yummy, yummy, yummy. In 1973, Neil Bogart started Casablanca Records, having success almost immediately with the band Kiss. After Neil Bogart got that copy of Love to Love You, Baby, he decided to play it at a party he was throwing at his house in L.A. Well, it was met with an overwhelmingly positive reaction, especially that part with the orgasmic moaning and groaning. Neil Bogart called Giorgio Moroder and he said, Hey, can you make the record much longer? specifically the part where she's having an orgasm. Giorgio obliged, and he came back with a 16-minute version of the song, which, according to the BBC, contained the sound of no less than 23 orgasms. Love to Love You Baby took up one entire side of Donna Summer's debut album. When the single of Love to Love You Baby hit the radio in the U.S., in a shortened version, it caused a bit of a scandal since there'd never been anything so overtly sexual on pop radio before. But the record was a smash, making pretty apparent the fact that American pop culture, and disco culture in particular, was ready to embrace and even celebrate explicit sexuality right out in the open. Of course, we'd hear a lot more from Giorgio Moroder, Pete Bellotta, and Donna Summer as the 70s wore on. Like Fly Robin Fly, their sound was Kraftwerk-influenced Eurodisco, and its simplified beat was extremely appealing to middle America. It made disco even more inviting for people who weren't very good dancers. At this point, the first disco deluge began. Look at the Billboard charts from any week in 1976, and you'll find at least a few disco records in the top 10. And it wasn't just newcomers and has-beens making a comeback anymore. The biggest stars in the music business were jumping on the bandwagon. Especially the stars over at Motown, who had thus far sat things out. The Miracles were the first Motown act with a big disco hit, going to number one with Love Machine. Then Marvin Gaye jumped aboard with I Want You. But the biggest hit of them all was by the biggest star in the Motown universe. Coming up, a new queen of disco is crowned and reigns supreme. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day savings event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Diana Ross was already a superstar in 1976, and she was coming off of a number one hit with the theme song from a movie in which she'd starred, Mahogany, and she had no interest at all in going disco. In fact, she insisted that the label release a different song as her next single instead of Love Hangover, which she saw as merely an album track. But then, the group The Fifth Dimension released their own version of Love Hangover and started to get on the radio with it. Barry Gordy at Motown sat down with Diana Ross and convinced her to change singles, and Love Hangover was rush-released. Now, Love Hangover was heavily influenced by Love to Love You, Baby. Diana Ross is using her extra-sexy voice, including some heavy breathing, although no orgasmic moans and groans. And the music track and the background vocals all sound much more Munich than Motown. Love Hangover hit number one right around the time of the U.S. Bicentennial and, of course, became one of the defining hits of Diana Ross's career. Love Hangover 
Meanwhile, the dominance of the Philadelphia sound in disco was coming to an end. The musicians who formed the core of the Philadelphia house band, MFSB, including Vibes player and arranger Vince Montana, defected from Gamble and Huff's Philly International label over financial disagreements. They wanted to earn a bigger piece of the hits they were playing on. So they signed with a New York-based label called Sal Soul Records, where they formed the Sal Soul Orchestra, which featured some of the most legendary musicians in Philadelphia, including, incidentally, Buddy Savitt, the saxophonist who gave the twist by Chubby Checker its defining sound. Plus, our friends Harris, Baker, and Young took their services over to Sal Soul. Now, the Sal Soul Orchestra really hit it big with a song called Tangerine, which, like the Ritchie family's Brazil, was another glossy cover of a song from an old Hollywood movie. This one from 1941. But the next record to come out on Sal Soul was The Real Game Changer. Produced by Harris, Baker, and Young, 10% by the group Double Exposure, was remixed by Walter Gibbons, who was the DJ at New York's Galaxy 21 Disco. His remix of the song received such a positive reaction that Sal Soul Records decided to commercially release the 12-inch single of the remix that originally had just been sent to club DJs. Now, this was the first time anyone had ever put out a commercial 12-inch vinyl single, and no one knew if there was even a market for such a product. But 10% sold like hotcakes, and thus, a new commercial format was born, and one that could be sold at a much higher price than a 7-inch single. On the 10% remix, Walter Gibbons was taking the art of the remixer to the next level, radically reconstructing the record from the ground up, stripping away almost all of the original production and even most of the lyrics to turn the record into something completely new and entirely designed for the dance floor. By now, disco hits were coming from everywhere. Some were silly, like Wing and a Prayer, Fife and Drum Corps version of the 1920s song, Babyface. Some were awe-inspiring, like Mighty High by the veteran gospel group Mighty Clouds of Joy, featuring the great Earl Young on drums. There was Donna Summer-inspired sexiness from porn actress Andrea True. A failed rock band called Wild Cherry gave in to the times and went disco to have their only hit with Play That Funky Music. There was even a disco version of the theme from the 1950s TV show, I Love Lucy. (laughs) 
And of course, there was the disco version of Beethoven's Fifth by Walter Murphy and his Big Apple Band, which went all the way to number one. Disco was everywhere. There were discos for kids, for roller skaters, discos for grandma and grandpa, discos in converted supermarkets and in shopping malls and in holiday inns. And the Fred Astaire dance studios kept doing great business teaching everybody to do the hustle. Now, when something gets that big, things start to get silly. Rick Dees was a top 40 DJ in Memphis, and he heard a disco song that he personally thought was really stupid called Gimme Some by Jimmy Bohorn. That prompted him to write a song to parody the whole disco scene, which he thought had gotten out of control. Living as he did in Memphis, the home of the recently bankrupt Stax Records, it was only natural that he'd make his way to a new label called Freetone, owned by Stax Records co-founder Estelle Axton. She's the AX in Stax. He went into the studio with producer Bobby Manuel, a former Stax guitarist, and they put together a musical track that was essentially a disco version of Rufus Thomas's 1969 Stax hit, Do the Funky Chicken. And for lyrics, well, the funky chicken became a disco duck. And Rick Dees wound up with a number one novelty record. Flapping my arms, I begin to cluck. Look at me, I'm the disco duck. And right around this time, the anti-disco backlash started. No one knows who first coined it, but already by the end of 1976, haters of disco music were using the phrase, disco sucks which people were singing to the tune of the chorus of Disco Duck. And well, some of it did start to suck. When disco started, the hit records were coming out of really cool New York City discos where DJs known for their great taste in music were discovering and championing new gems one after another. But by 1977, there were disco records that the cool kids wouldn't touch. So the record labels, major labels mainly, who were investing heavily in disco by this point, were promoting them to the discos in the malls and the Holiday Inns. From there, the biggest of them made their way to the radio. They were disco-sounding records, but they weren't accepted by the people who'd pioneered the scene. Leo Sayer was a really talented singer-songwriter from England. I actually like his early 70s albums a lot. But when his career stalled mid-decade, well, Leo went disco. And he had a number one hit with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, probably the poster child for a song that the public thought was disco, but the taste-making DJs thought was dreck. It was clear that there was a glut of bad disco out there. You'll remember from our Twist episode of Speed of Sound that back in the early 60s when Chubby Checker first hit with the Twist, the record initially found its audience among listeners of Top 40 Radio, mostly teenagers. 
Then, over the next year or so, it began to be discovered by society folk, adults who congregated at places like New York's Peppermint Lounge. And it got so big among the Jet Set crowd that the record was re-released and hit number one all over again. Well, the same thing happened with the whole genre of disco. Just as interest in disco was beginning to wane a little bit on pop radio, a disco opened in New York City that catered to high society. On April 26, 1977, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager, who'd previously owned a disco in Queens called The Enchanted Garden, opened Studio 54. Like a certain real estate developer from Queens who was there on that opening night, Rubell and Schrager had ditched the outer boroughs for the glamour and celebrity that they felt could only be attained in Manhattan. The club was an immediate success. During its first week, the fashion designer Halston threw a 30th birthday party for Bianca Jagger, attended by 150 A-list celebrities. The highlight of that party, the moment that really made Studio 54, occurred at midnight. As DJ Nicky Ciano played Bianca's hubby's song, Sympathy for the Devil, a naked man covered in silver glitter led a white horse into the club. When Bianca Jagger mounted the horse and rode across the dance floor, the image was captured by dozens of cameras and appeared in every newspaper in the country. Studio 54 instantly attained legendary status. The mastermind behind that party, and nearly everything else that brought fame to Studio 54, was a Peruvian-born public relations woman named Carmen D'Alessio, who was already a fixture on the New York disco scene. She'd been a regular at the loft from the beginning. At Studio 54, Carmen D'Alessio conceived of everything about the club, other than the music. She envisioned the elaborate design of the space, which was a converted theater, bringing in Broadway lighting specialists and set designers to imbue the club with the sense of glamour associated with the fashion world, where she'd gotten her start in public relations. While Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager are the names history associates with running Studio 54, Carmen D'Alessio was responsible for its character and for masterminding all of its most outlandish parties. Over the years, Studio 54 has become a central focus of our collective historical memory of disco. But it wasn't as though most people could get in. The club was meant for a celebrity crowd. Andy Warhol, Michael Jackson, Liza Minnelli. Margaret Trudeau, the wife of Canada's prime minister, she was a regular. And it was known for the vast quantities of drugs taken there. Cocaine and quaaludes had replaced the poppers that were being taken in the early discos and for the outrageous sex engaged in its bathrooms, basement, and balcony. The drugs, in fact, fueled the sex, which was quite often anonymous and generally unprotected in that pre-AIDS era. Studio 54 is famous for the shirtless busboys, the flamboyant drag queens, but perhaps it's best remembered for the arbitrary brutality of its door policy. The club was famous for allowing a woman in but not her date or turning away celebrities. The actor Michael Douglas was somebody who got turned away even though he was already a really major star or saying to a group, you and you and you, but not you. Most people simply couldn't get in at all. But that didn't keep them from standing on the street hoping against hope. Andy Warhol once said that was the key to Studio 54's success. It was a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the dance floor. And the fact that the door was controlled by Mark Benish, a gay man, was symbolic of the fact that in this place, it was gay culture that was the arbiter of what was cool and what was not. Nile Rogers still remembers his Studio 54 days quite fondly. Studio 54 changed the entire game because 
it was a place where it felt like the safest place in the world. It really felt like a speakeasy, even though all of the earlier discos had that same kind of vibe too. But Studio 54 was big. It was like enormous. And you felt enormous being in there. If you were one of the people who were special enough to be in Studio 54, it felt like you were in a magical place. And if they played your music, wow, you really felt like a king. And the scene was no doubt Bacchanalian, as Nile Rodgers recalls. The sex was fantastic. It was, the girls were amazing. Uh, uh, I think you may have heard the story about how my office was the Studio 54 girls' bathroom. And no woman ever asked me to leave the stall or anything. When it was that cool. And the thing is that that disco mentality and culture sort of spread all around the world. Studio 54 remains to this day a lightning rod for our interest in disco because it really plays to our collective infatuation with wealth and with celebrity. It's a classic example of a white elite picking up on a minority culture and then claiming it as its own. As Stephen Gaines wrote in his biography of the designer Halston, Studio 54 was the embodiment of the most decadent social period of any city in modern history. The idealism and equality of the early discos like The Loft had been utterly trampled on and left behind by the worship of wealth and celebrity. The 60s ethos that the celebrities who spent time at Studio 54 had once experienced was now nothing but a distant memory. As journalist Andrew Kopkin wrote at the time, The 60s were brawless, lumpy, heavy. Disco is stylish, chic, sleek, light. Disco emphasizes surfaces over substance, mood over meaning. The 60s were a mind trip, marijuana, LSD. Disco is a body trip, quaaludes, cocaine. The 60s were cheap. Disco is expensive. On a 60s trip, you saw God. On a disco trip, you see Jackie O at Studio 54. Studio 54 also became the place from which a lot of hit records began to break. They employed great DJs, Nicky Ciano from the gallery and Richie Kazor primarily. Donna Summer had one of the first records to break from Studio 54's dance floor, a record that went down as one of the pioneering achievements of electronic music, I Feel Love. I Feel Love was once again deeply influenced by the German electronic music innovators Kraftwerk, Specifically, their newest record, Trans Europe Express. Producer Giorgio Moroder put the Kraftwerk idea on steroids, combining electronics with a thumping mechanical beat, and of course, Donna Summer's trademark sensuous vocals. The record was a revelation. No one had ever heard anything like it. I Feel Love pointed in the direction that dance music and pop in general would take for the next decade. But overall, disco was in trouble out in the wider culture. While Studio 54 grabbed headlines in the gossip columns, on the pop charts, it seemed as though disco was beginning to peter out. In the spring of 1977, even Casey Kasem noted on American Top 40 the decline in the number of disco songs on the chart, and he speculated that the disco fad might be running out of steam. 
We mentioned that in 1976, there were as many as six disco records in the top 10 on any given week. But by late 1977, there weren't any at all in the entire top 30. There was still really big hits in the clubs themselves, of course, but there was less and less overlap between what was being played in the discos and what was hitting big on pop radio. For 34 weeks in 1977, the songs that were number one on the disco chart, which measured club play, never even hit the top 40 on the pop chart. Disco kind of felt over. WPIX-FM, the first all-disco station in the country, gave up on disco and changed their format to album rock in the summer of 1977. Now, that would prove to be a miscalculation of historic proportions. Because while disco was on the ropes, it was far from dead. It just needed a little outside help. Well, the white knight that saved disco just in the nick of time came from Hollywood. And I use the term white knight on purpose because the knight was wearing a white three-piece suit. On the next episode of Speed of Sound, we'll find out how John Travolta and the Bee Gees took disco to undreamt of heights and in the process struck gold with a blockbuster movie and the biggest album of all time. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and the songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Until next time, keep your feet on the dance floor and always keep reaching for that mirrored ball. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. 
It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.